What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit podcast. It is a beautiful Monday, a little humid, but uh, happy to be here, excited to be doing another interview. Great guest lined up for you guys today. Before we make a quick intro, we've got to start things off with our Patreon question of the day, which is, what is the best childhood vacation you ever went on? I know mine. Go. Hands down. Um... So growing up, it, I grew up with a single dad, and we had no money at all. And uh, dad wanted to take me to Disney World. So he had saved up like maybe $300, $400 in cash, didn't even put it in the bank because he was scared he would lose it if he put it in the bank. <laughs> and we drove from Edmond, Oklahoma to Orlando. And he's thinking, and, and he, we picked up his little brother on the way. His little brother was in college at LSU. So we picked him up on the way, and we get to Orlando, and I'm, like, 
seven years old. I clearly remember this. Um, and dad's thinking, we'll just get a hotel room when we get there. He made no plans. He thinks you just show up and buy tickets or whatever. And this is in the early 80s, okay? So we get there. He could not afford any of the hotel rooms that were right around the park. And he was like, you know, I can only spend maybe $30, $40 on a hotel room. And they're like, well, you need to go back that way. Just go far away from the park. And so we end up backtracking like an hour outside of Orlando. We stay in a motel that was very much like the Bates Motel. Mm. Roaches Creepy. all over the room. <laughs> and I enjoyed killing all of the roaches. That I found that as my job. Yeah, it's job. Just, just to go around and stomp all of the roaches. We got a bucket of fried chicken for the whole trip. That's a good trip. We, we stuffed yeah. the chicken in a bag and went to Disney World. Well, it ended up raining and no one wanted to ride on the rides in the rain, but the rides were still going. So we rode in the rain all day, no lines, and we had the best time ever. It was my favorite, favorite, favorite trip. And my dad ended up doing really well for himself. And so the next time... Uh, we went to Orlando, I was probably 20 and we flew in a private plane and stayed in the nicest hotel at Disney world. And it totally different. It was actually the extremes of different spectrums of going there financially. And I enjoyed the first time better. So, because we, we had to like, just enjoy it. We enjoyed every moment. I loved it so, so much. That is my absolute favorite childhood vacation. That's awesome. How about you, Eric? I got to say, when when I was younger and my folks also didn't have a lot of money, uh, we would rent a beach house for two months over the summer in uh, Bethany Beach, Delaware, which is like my second home. It's not too far away from where I am here, just north of D.C. And we do it with two other families. And and so it was the adults all had the bedrooms and the kids were just in, you know, in hallways or an old extra mattresses on the floor but it was uh it was it was that's just that community of families and all all my friends just there living together and and spending a month like that that uh just have these incredible memories from that and i think that's a great way to grow up it's awesome yeah mine too down in the that was a cabin on the lake we didn't have any money or anything like that and we stayed there for a week or two and it's just the experience about being down there and uh See the movie Grown Ups? I watch that movie a lot because it reminds me of that trip. Because you, I got to get a couple friends with you. Like the family elders would come in and their yep. kids would come in, your cousins or whatever, and you can just sit there and sit outside, play in the water and do all that. That was the best. Yeah, for sure. So I think really as long as you're with family and you're doing something, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter uh-huh. how much money you're spending. Just being together outside of your normal element is really the best vacation anybody can have yeah and anybody can have that you don't have to do something fancy and book all the fancy things it's it's really just that bonding time of being outside your normal comfort zone well it's funny everybody who grows up out in the country in a cabin on a on a on a pond or a lake they want to get to the big city but everybody (laughs) in the big city wants to make a bunch of money so they can get a cabin on the lake to relax Right. Well, now everybody wants to get out of the big city, yeah, yeah. especially yeah. the last two years. That's right. Everyone loves sitting around a campfire at the end of the night next to the lake telling stories with your friends. I mean, that's just like the, the right. like you could sit, get it. Well, like, what's the best moment for anybody? And they're like, ah, the sports game. Like, well, some people, most everybody likes to do that. Yeah. Right. 
Andrew, do you have one? Yeah, we... So back in the day, you could read books at school for, it was called like the 600. You, could, you can't read now. You can't read. You're not even allowed to read anymore, man. Back in the 1900s, man, you used to be able to read, 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 read in school. Uh, but we would do this thing where you'd, it's called the 600 Minutes Club. And I think you'd read enough books and log your minutes. And then when you got the minutes, you'd get free Six Flags uh, tickets. Mm-hmm. And back then, Astroworld existed. And so for me, you know, same kind of situation. We didn't have a lot of, you know, money. And so that was like our bigger trips was going just into Houston to go to Astroworld, and that was the best time. But I think I can just bounce off what y'all are saying, and sometimes it's just about making time to just go and just get out, even if it's just two days Didn't you on go on vacation with my family? My best non-my family childhood vacation? <laughs> That's a great way to say that. Yeah. We should come up with a word for that. <laughs> was, yeah, so y- your family took me to Pensacola Bay. Oh, nice. And that was my first time on a plane, first time out of Texas, first... <laughs> Like, first time eating oysters. There was a lot of firsts. I've known Andrew since he was a little kid, so... All right. Yeah. That was, a, that was probably my most fun non-family family trip. I wasn't trip. on that trip, but I remember you going. That was everybody. a lot of fun. John, you got one? Um, mine is actually Disney World 2, but... So, my parents bought a timeshare condo in Kissimmee, Florida the year before they opened... Disney World. Oh my gosh. So they got it super cheap. And so we actually went to Disney World, even though we didn't have a lot of money growing up. We went quite a bit. Because you had the, the place to we stay. Had a place to stay that was close. Oh my gosh. Well, my favorite time, we did not take my cousin Aaron with us on this one <laughs> trip. And Hurricane Aaron came in and we ran from it. Like we tried to still have a vacation and we, you know, we went to Pensacola and then it hit there. And then we went you know, somewhere in Alabama, it hit there and then Louisiana. And we kind of just worked our way back home in increments instead of just going straight But Aaron home, was but chasing you. It chased us the way and we took him the next year. It awesome. didn't happen again. Man. Oh that my is gosh. awesome. Great hey, Patreon question. Great Patreon question. If you guys haven't already, check it out. Patreon.com slash team never quit. We have exclusive access to behind the scenes content, some really great swag, some cool foam backgrounds there's all kind of great stuff there and most importantly you can get uh, the ability to ask your questions to the guests and have a good time participating in the show we have got a great guest in store for you guys today eric is an accomplished public speaker a security expert the author that lectures internationally about espionage and national security cybersecurity, fraud corporate diligence and defense excuse me i can't even speak english I Ooh. remember I told you you're supposed Ooh, to break it. You're supposed to break it down. You're supposed to break into the voice when you stutter. Yeah, like I that. stutter just <laughs> the voice. Like just do the <clears throat> in February 2001. Yeah, there. Immediately that way it's, it's not. A, it's like you didn't mess up. It's a smooth transition. Thank and, you. And, <laughs> that's awesome. In February 2001, Eric helped capture the most notorious spy in U.S. history. Eric O'Neill, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks, guys. I mean, you look like a Jason Bourne and a James Bond. I mean, from, 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 <laughs> I what, I, from what I know about you and what you had to go through, that makes you very, very proficient at this job. Yeah, I was good at it. Uh, that, that, that I don't have to be too modest about. I was, uh, I, I was highly trained to work undercover. Um, my job at the FBI was go undercover. Actually, for all the years I was in the FBI, I never came out of cover. Uh, I was tasked to surveil and investigate um, foreign intelligence officers. So those are your spies foreigners who are working here, but sometimes they were some of our own who were spying for other countries and terrorists who are operating uh, primarily around the DC area. 
Wow. Well, let's take it back a couple notches and yeah, tell where'd us. Where'd you come from? Yeah, where'd you come from and tell us, like, what. How, uh, how did you get into this? So yeah. that, that's the best way. To, the best stories are like, all right, bro. How did you even get how into the, hell, the FBI? I, where did you seed from? Yeah, it was, you know a, I mean? it was a pretty uh, complicated path to get into the FBI. I. I was I was born pretty much into the Navy. My father was a U.S. Navy Academy grad, class of '68. Uh, my grandfather was a gunnery officer on a destroyer out in the Pacific. Uh, I have two other uncles who were in the Navy. I mean, I come from this crazy Navy family. Um, my two youngest brothers went to the Naval Academy. I was supposed to go. I was I was raised to go to the Naval Academy. That was my my parents met there on the steps. Of the academy and uh and, and we're married there okay, so you're and one so, of those families i'm one of those families yes right, this, and, the story and, just got better then because i and it's always the one that gets that doesn't get to go in right from the entire family <laughs> were they exactly and, and i was <laughs> that's uh, a yeah, big deal I, what he's talking about that's a big deal all through high school that uh, that's what i i struggled for the grades i wanted to fly you know this is when the the first top gun was out right right when i was in high school so that was that was a, a big incentive, right? That's what everybody wanted to do. Go fly a Tomcat. Hey, Tom same Cruise. thing. The, Tom Cruise, man, like, I think the guy just saved America with that new movie. I haven't seen it yet, but I heard I it. I saw it, it yesterday, <laughs> and it is so Thank you, good. Tom Cruise, right? Yeah. I heard he did. And the first one, I wanted to be a pilot. I, the F-18 models, or no, excuse me, uh, 14s. The Tomcats. Yeah. yeah, the Tomcats. Which are a badass aircraft for those of you who don't know. That, there's a reason why they put them suckers in there. And yep. uh, I'm sorry, man. I find it fascinating that your whole family's like that. Yeah. I, I, I really do. But did your parents get married at the cathedral on they did. Uh, oh, yep. it's so beautiful? It was old Navy. My uh, my uncle, uh, who was my father's classmate, introduced them. Oh my gosh. How Good cool. Lord. Did you have a great grandfather that had an eye patch and a corn cob pipe? Because I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it feels that way sometimes. I mean, to know, as I didn't go to the academy, but I have buddies that do, but I, we go up there quite a bit. And to, when you see the history, and I asked about this too, same way at, at Army. At the West Point. At yeah. West Point. I was right. like, hey man, you guys got a family in, in here that has a kid here right now where they've been in here since y'all started? Yeah. And he's like, there's a couple of them. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. Yeah. Which, I believe no it. pressure for the damn kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't screw oh, yeah. that up. And then for the university, how are you going to kick that sucker out? But they're like, we would. That's what makes it so hard <laughs> oh, about yeah, it. I believe that too. They would. <laughs> they well, would look, I, uh, I got in one year deferred. It was, it's pretty tough to get into the academy yeah. from Maryland, right? Because everybody. I was going to ask you, is that, where you're, is that where you were living? You grew up in that yeah. whole area? Crab cakes yep, and football, Maryland. right? That's what yep. Maryland Just does. Just north of D.C. And, uh, and so I decided to go to Auburn University for a year, study aerospace engineering. I got in there because if I had grade skin in the academy, you get in pretty much everywhere. And uh, after a year of Auburn, I didn't want to leave. You know, I met a girl. I, I, I had a cool group of friends. I, Auburn, Alabama is an amazing place. I was back down to my southern roots. I'm not from here. I'm from South Carolina. Um, Charleston, that dirty cell, baby. And, I was just up in. I was just. I was just up in there, Jeremy. Up in there. It <laughs> <laughs> just comes yeah, up naturally, man. Are, I can't it help was, it. It was probably one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had in my life. Is is coming home and sitting down in front of my parents and telling them I'm I've decided not to go to the Naval Academy. Yeah, I'm I want to hear that. Do you mind? Is okay, I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. Oh my god, it was a terrible story. Did you and, prep uh, it? My mom you, started okay, crying, you, which made it worse. Aww. How long did but you? But my father looked at me and he said you know, you have to chase your dreams, whatever they might be. If the Navy's not for you, then you'll be miserable if you go there. You just, you have to do something. And I never forgot that 
conversation and even graduating from Auburn and thinking about what I wanted to do, I felt like I had I had let myself down and my family down and not going to the Navy, even though I did it for, in my mind, the right reasons. And I always wanted to serve my country. Uh, and I found a way to do it. And that was by applying to virtually every civilian agency I could. So it wasn't just the FBI. I applied to the FBI, the DEA, the CIA, the NSA, Secret Service. And uh, and just and back then, it was, you know, you would, you would send... Uh, a postcard in, and they would send you back a whole uh, a packet, the book, the packet of full of all the books material. and applications and everything. Okay, we're talking about back in the 1900s, and you know, we're, we're going in. It was <laughs> yeah, hard. I, know. I it, mean, it, like, it, it was hard. amazing how different it is now. Kids ask me, you know, I really want to get into the FBI, and what do I do? And it's like you go on Fez, Fed, fedbiz.ops, yeah, and you apply sign online. Up. Back then, you had to use this thing called a typewriter. Bro, I remember trying <laughs> to even sign up for anything, It was and it was mysterious. I mean, it was like, yes. hey, man. And guys who get in there, I, I thought they because I want to do the academies too. You know, they, if we're all similar, we're cut from the same cloth, just different sides right. of it, right? And um, I remember looking at the applications and getting stuff in the mail, and it was so much material. It was like a year of school just to even try and figure out what you wanted just to, to do. understand it. Yeah. And there's no back then. There was no one to explain it. No now one to explain it. Hold your hand. That's when you just but, like, hey man, you just got to step into it. Yep. It's, that was the unknown for us. And I think that was the first time when we were, were released from the nest. I mean, you get a, if you get a dose of it like that in the beginning, everything else kind of gets out of the way, I think. Right. It's a good way to put it. I'm yeah, sorry. I, go applied. I, I got, I heard back pretty quickly from the FBI, the DEA and the secret service. You know, I never heard back from the CIA. Apparently later I learned that they recruit you. They think you're weird if you apply. Yeah. Um, okay. And, I've heard uh, that. Is that true? And I had to make I heard a decision. That. It was between the uh, FBI and the DEA. Uh, a friend in the Secret Service said, D "Don't you know it? You you'll take a long time to do the really fun stuff. For you know, for the first number of years, you'll just be sitting on the nephew of someone who's important." Oh, you're talking and about the Secret Service? Secret Service, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could talk and, to you all day, but I love those guys, man. That's job, a great job. Yeah, it does take time to to work up the ranks to the yeah. to the really cool stuff. They're funny and, about that in in there. <laughs> and I just decided between the FBI and the DA, I was going to choose whoever gave me a Quantico slot first. And uh, it was the FBI by one day. And I've never, I've never heard someone curse as colorfully as that DEA recruiter. And he was just, he just went off and they're always poaching our best guys. And I was <laughs> handpicked you and I can't believe this. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's another moment in my life, right. Where I, I was looking at two extraordinarily divergent paths in life going into the DEA where statistically you will pull your firearm and fire it within two weeks of being deployed uh, right out of the academy and the FBI, which was, uh, I knew I was going to be doing undercover investigative work, which is a little bit more slow paced and, uh, and, and, and cerebral and, and investigating your target and learning about them and finding that one bright moment where you've caught them doing something wrong. Uh, I just couldn't decide which I wanted. Uh, but fate decided for me. I was going to say, Haji, was a coin flip? Because those are two different lives. That's like rock star and rhythm and blues. I mean, yeah, I was struggling. I was man, talking different. to people. I was, I was reaching out to people I know and trust to mentor me. And at the end of the day, like I said, I just I just said, whoever gives me the Quantico date first. You know, because I, I, I got to start a job here. I can't, yeah. can't just be hanging around. Yeah. All right. So FBI, here we go.
That's right. Got into the FBI, and then I, I spent the next five years um, undercover. Wait, 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 wait. Back it up a little bit. <laughs> wait, you skipped over a whole bunch of stuff. What's it like going in there the first day? Yeah. Huh. Like, well, I mean, you show up. I mean, did you bring a hair dryer? Did you bring you some start, tennis shoes? So I mean, there are things Ken talk about and things I can't. Right. Sure. You start. Uh, now I'm talking about the feeling. Right. The feeling was. I, I got to be honest. I, I suddenly have a badge. I'm a law enforcement. You know, I'm a, I'm a trained. This is after Quantico, of course. I'm a trained law enforcement officer, and my job is real serious. I'm I am going to stop spies before they steal our secrets. I'm going to stop terrorists before they kill our citizens. How long when you when they handed you your badge and creds did you sit there and look at it that night at that when you got to the house? Oh, I, I think I sat there for a very long time. Right, it happens, just right? At you it, just look at it. You letting sit it there sink in. Doesn't, you're not reading I mean, you're reading it, but it's not like a full <laughs> book. It's just, when something like that happens, it's like when you make a transition from one being one type of human to the other. I try to explain this to the younger ones. I'm like, hey, when you start kindergarten and when you graduate high school, you're a different human. When you start martial arts, you're a white belt to black belt. At the, you're a completely different type of human. Same with SEAL training when, in the Quantico to when you get that badge. You can feel it, and all it takes is when someone acknowledges it. And in those big moments like that, that badge, I ask a lot of the guys that, you can tell, man, you stare at that sucker. I don't know right. what that is. I, I, with guys, maybe just like to see something shiny. I, I, I don't I think know what it, it is, man. I but. think it is only attributable to those things, and I'm two out of the three things that you just mentioned, right? I'm not, not a Navy SEAL, but I am a black belt, uh, that you earn and you feel like you earned it. Right. Yeah. So going through Quantico was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, people washed out. I know going through Buds, with having a brother who went through it and hearing the stories firsthand, reading your book, that, that's got to be one of the hardest things to do on earth. I mean, if you go to a good school and you get a black belt and you're testing with five other people and only two of you make it, you oh, know you earned you it. You freaking right? know and it. When you've earned something, then when you look, take that moment to step back, as you said, and think about it, you realize that this, this is really important and truly life-changing. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. That's a great way to say that. There is a huge difference 
from when you looking at that badge and it reminds you of everything that you had to go through it. That's why it means something to you. As opposed to if you didn't earn it and you looked at it, it would just be something you were looking at. You're not, so you're not, we're not actually looking at that object. We're looking at everything that went into getting that sucker. Right. Right. It took me a full year from when I applied to the FBI until I was uh, deployed on the street uh, after training and, and with that badge and credentials. That's so, how much, uh, that's how serious it is and how much is invested in each person who is congressionally appointed to protect the country. Oh, rightfully so. When your mom was crying that you're going to Auburn, is she happy now? Like, was at that moment that you, oh, yeah, went, when was the yeah, switchback? <laughs> the, they were very, they, they were very proud. They <laughs> Back got in the, the circle of trust for my graduation. And, uh, and, and then, and then, you know, I, I got the kind of the, like the, the nod from my father. All right, it's all good now. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just immediately started working on my younger two brothers. All right. Aww. So, hey, was he an admiral? Does he, is he like that type of old man? Where he's like, hey, good son. No, good he, job. So, without you know, saying it, just kind of gives you the it, look. It's funny. My uncle, who introduced my parents, stayed in much longer and always laughs about your father is the biggest Johnny Navy guy in the entire world who uh, who did two tours, but he was a submariner. I mean, he, he oh, was doing well, real they're different all together underwater for a very long time. Man, them uh, dudes and bubbleheads are different. Yeah. And, I've been on uh, there. And well, he left. He, I mean, he left the Navy after I was born uh, and uh, went to Yale. I mean, talk about an overachiever. Oh, wow. Goes from yeah. one of the top, I think, second in his class, the Naval Academy, to one of the top in his class at Yale. Nerd Got alert. his law degree and, um, <laughs> and worked at the same law firm for his entire career. That's amazing. Oh, man, that's like one of those America. True America. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you hear a guy who yeah. went to the Academy and then after tours and being a submariner, he went to Yale and then, <laughs> exactly. and then he but was a lawyer. But you look at his class. Of course he was. his graduating class from the Naval Academy, class of 68. It's like one of the most star-studded Naval Academy classes in history. There, are, I think there are more like admirals, astronauts. Yeah, you know. Oh yeah, that's a thing. I didn't know that, but when you go to some of the reunions, you sitting around hearing them talk, they'll say that, and it's it's true. Like some of those classes that come out of there, every one of them guys and does something. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep, that was his class, and. And he, yeah, he loves to man. remind people of it. But my father's amazing. <laughs> oh. he, he was always an incredible mentor. Yeah. And also, I, I think what's real support important, too, is he was supportive. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, he he's always had the had the theory, you know, in life is that you have to do something that you love. If you're not doing something you love, then you're wasting your time yeah. because then it's just work. Right. So he, I'm sure he had his ring on all the time. He smack you oh, with his, that sucker. He, he, oh, dude. Yeah, that yeah. ring never goes away. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're in, you've graduated. What what happens next? Were you married at that point or? No, I wasn't. I, I was single when I graduated the FBI Academy. I was living in a group house in Washington, D.C., which is, you know, what I could afford on Adams Morgan. And those, I got to say, and that's where I met my wife um, in, in my 20s. Uh, she was, she is German. If you read my book or seen the movie, she actually is German, uh, came over from Germany for a one-year professional exchange. Our Congresses and their Bundestag, which is their parliament, they exchange uh, 50 students uh, who are the top enterprising future business prospects uh, so that they'll, they'll learn the culture and they'll go back to their country and uh, and promote trade between Germany and America. They're not supposed to get married, mm. <laughs> but we met and, uh, and, and fell in love. And I proposed to her within a year uh, because I knew she was leaving and I didn't want to get her to get away. Aww. And then we did spend a year apart and then got married. And it was when, uh, and, and during 
all the time we were dating and, and our, you know, the beginning of when we got married, I was working for the FBI and couldn't tell her what I did. Oh, wow. What did she, what did she think that you did? Uh, you know, when we were, were dating, what I would tell most people is that I work for the Justice Department. And when they asked, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a geopolitical analyst. And that yeah. was just the, the death knell for the rest of the nobody wants to hear that conversation. This is not helping me get dates. Yeah. Well, and there's he, that too. And the like, FBI had trained me to lie. So then I would go out and I would tell people, you know, I'm I'm a private investigator. I'm a doctor. You know, I'm an archaeologist. I just make stuff up. <laughs> yeah. So the best when you're going through your cover stories is that. I mean, you don't want to be say something that's too complex because no one wants to talk to you. But then if it's too interesting, easy, then everybody's yeah, yeah. going to ask a million questions. So we like going out, we would always say, because it was usually a bunch of us. So we had to go with the team route. But if you're ever by yourself, you're like, man, you know, I'm a prison barber. Or a rodeo clown <laughs> or something where our face had to be covered and and it, they would just end the conversation right there. But yeah, I liked archaeologists. That's a good one. Because, uh, you know, I knew enough engineering to budget. Right. And, and no one really knows what archaeologists does other than they watch the Indiana Jones movies and sure. they think that's what it is. And you'd be like, no, no, it's, it's really very slow paced and a yeah. lot of very careful you know, excavation work and you yeah. just make it up as you go along. And I work in a library. <laughs> the only one Librarian. left. I work in that. It's true. I mean, you got to put some effort into your story. Yeah. That's that, right. That, that, it, it, but we learned how to build a cover. It's called a legend. Yeah. yeah. It gets better with age too. Cause you find out what works. Hard part is, is when you got a cover identity and you try to throw it out there and you run into somebody who's really good at it and you're like, Oh, but like you said, geologist, man, you can go any way with that. Or archaeologist. I mean, right, archaeologist, right. yeah, excuse me. Or you're you're pretending <laughs> you're something, and then you run into, you're pretending you're an archaeologist, and then you run into a geologist. Yeah, and you're right. like, oh, really? So what do you think of this? It's like, hey, let's just get another beer. Yeah, I need another yeah. beer, man. What's <laughs> you talking about work for? That's right? like that movie, There's Something About Mary. Yeah, just like the, that. Uh, the guy's lying and yeah, yeah, says yeah. he's an architect, and right, right, he runs right, exactly. into like the most famous architect. Yeah. <laughs> How long but you know, when you're dating someone, they start figuring things out because sure. you know I'm, I'm getting up in the morning and grabbing two huge duffel bags full of crazy gear you know running down to a car that's been modified that no one's out else is ever allowed to ride in yeah and uh and leaving to go god knows where and i mean sometimes i didn't know when i'd be back i i was i was trailing one target once in virginia and i, I had to call and say hey i'm not going to be home tonight uh like why i'm in miami yeah. What are you doing, in Miami? Oh, I can't really tell you, but uh, we'll be back later. Well, <laughs> I had a buddy. She's who would a trooper keep... yeah, yeah. for sticking through that. And I had a buddy who would keep a Waffle House uniform in his in, in, in there, and he would show up wearing that thing because no one wants to. <laughs> <laughs> right, that is absolutely. You know true. what I mean? Wake up in the morning, put that with that. Hey, wake up! I got to get to work. I got to cover a shift. Oh, the morning after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Juliana used to say, you know, a lot of people complain that their husbands come home or their you know, significant others come home and all they do is talk about work, but Eric never talks about work. Yeah. <laughs> so we get to talk about other things. So she oh. had a very good uh, way of looking at it. That's awesome. She sounds like a trooper. Yeah. And at some point she learned that I was, I was in the FBI Sure. and I'm pretty sure it's I'm not supposed to do this. I shouldn't say this, but at this one time that I got stopped by a cop and, you know, I, I said, Oh, let me get my license out of this black case right here which are my credentials and yeah. that was sort of the code for hey i'm also a cop and 
How about a little bit of professional courtesy? Grace. And she was like, what is that? And I was like, oh, okay. You know, because you got that grin on your face like, hey. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, how did you not get a ticket? Yeah. <laughs> I need some help here. Guy code. Come on. It's a friend, it's a friend of dad's. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Uh, I've known that guy my whole life. I've known He knows me. Yeah. He knows me. How long were you in the FBI before you were assigned to the Information Assurance Division? So it was my fifth year in the FBI. It was fifth my last year. year there. So I was I was in the FBI five years, which doesn't sound like a lot of time after the fact, but it is a very long time to be uh, undercover. The burnout rate was about two years for what I did. Wow, five years is a long time. That's a when we get Especially in, man. It's the first. A, yeah, it's a stretch. It's to a keep assignment. Your brain to keep it up with all the lies and like yes, keep, it's keep exhausting. That straight. That's got to be so hard mentally. I mean, yeah, because especially if you stay in for a long time, because you could run into somebody that you ran into the first year down on year eight and be like, hey, I thought you were. So did you, before the kind of famous case that we're going to get into, before that, did you have any interesting cases that you can talk about? I had many cases, most of which I can't talk about. It's it's typically when there's been a big arrest. I mean, my first case was the Earl Pitts case that was uh, the uh, United States spy, and he had he had spied for Russia back in the Cold War, and we caught him early on in my FBI career. Um, I, I can tell you there was there was one case I can talk about, which was the before Hansen, the only spy that I ever spoke to, and he was a uh, he was an American who had worked for uh, the NSA and Department of the Army uh, back. Once again, during the Cold War, we were catching all these Cold War spies that that the the former KGB guys had started giving up as they wanted to defect, you know, in the 90s yeah. um, when I started in the FBI. And um, we'd enticed them back by false flagging him, which means that someone pretends they're a Russian. Right. And, and saying, hey, we want to we want to reconnect with you and um, and bring you back. Uh, so that we can have a discussion. We don't think it's safe to do it where he was living in Germany. And so they brought him back to the U.S. And our job, right, uh, my team, our job was just to identify him. No one had seen him for 20 years. Identify him off the airplane. We knew what airplane he was on, right? And uh, and take him to his hotel where we were going to make the arrest. You don't want to do arrests in public places because you just never know how someone's going to react. And we felt we could isolate him there. <clears throat> and um, uh, for whatever reason, I must have pissed off my team leader. I was, I was all the way at uh, ground transportation, right? Which is like the last person in the entire line yeah. of surveillance. Probably nothing. Team leaders always pissed off about something. Oh yeah, <laughs> team leaders always get mad at you about something. And who knows? I might have mouthed off, or I didn't listen, or I chased after a target when I wasn't supposed to. Who knows? Yeah. But uh, the guys who were at the gate, because this is back before nine eleven, so you could be at, standing at the gate. I mean. Yeah. It's amazing. I talk to crowds, especially students, and they have no concept of a time in the past when you used to go park and then walk with your your loved one, your friend, all yes. the way to the gate and then watch them scan their ticket and get on the plane. Yep. Yes. Uh, you know, that that's a foregone error because yeah. big crises change everything. Yeah. Uh, and so we were there and missed them. And and people start spinning, right? You hear the team in your earpiece going nuts. Yeah. You know, like did just... It, did he get past you? Did he not get off? Is he still on the plane? Is someone going to walk on the plane? Did, did you check the bathrooms? You know, all right, let's look for him and, and you know, luggage claim. Did anybody see him down there? Nobody saw him. 
And uh, I'm just listening to all this and thinking, God, I don't, I can't imagine how everybody missed this dude. Maybe he wasn't on the plane. So you call to the, uh, the agents who were in Germany. Yeah. He got on the plane. He was definitely there until I'm, I'm just listening. And then I hear a voice and thankfully not my right ear where my earpiece was, but my left, no, excuse me, sir. Do you know how to get to the Hertz gold bus? And I just kind of looked over and you learn to be super nonchalant and in control of your expressions when you work undercover. Yeah. Nothing ever surprises you. You just completely compress that, that excitable, you know, immediate action, right? Because there he was standing there. And it was clear to me that was him, right? This sort of faint European accent to this old American accent, same guy, but just age 20 years. And what really, uh, what really cued it in for me is he had the same laptop bag that we had seen in a picture in the past. Cause you memorize all the information you can. Yeah. I said, there he is. And, uh, they walked up on I, you. And I said, of course I do. That's Sorry. Awesome. You know, in fact, <laughs> I'm heading there too. So why just come with me? Matter of fact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's go. Get on. And so we both got on the bus. Um, he, he headed toward the back. I said, see you later. And I sat in the front and then I just started clicking my mic. And, and if you ever, you know, you've been in special ops, but you know, when you can't talk, bro, you're near your target. You just yeah, start yeah. clicking. Oh man. Right? Those are the greatest moments and the hardest moments at the same time. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Did and you the see team that? leader in, yeah, and I no. hear my team leader a guy named Waldo that everybody had code names. And sure, he says, sure. he says, wait, everybody stop. I hear clicking. And then he starts calling names, right? All the code names until he gets to me. And then, you know, click, click. And I go, okay. Werewolf must have them. Yeah. And, uh, and I couldn't really say anything, but we had to wait. And as soon as we got off the bus, I moved uh, out of his earshot. And then I got on, got on the comms and I said, yeah, I've got him. We're at the Hertz parking. He's going to get a car right now, you know, move the team over here and I need a pickup cause I'm burned. So I got to go home early that day. Oh yeah. my gosh. How cool is that? That's such an adrenaline rush when you. Yeah. What was that like yeah. coming home from that? Yeah, that, like, that was oh, pretty awesome. So cool. You know, you, you, you love the off. winds, right? Yeah. You, you love the, uh, the winds that, um, that, uh, you, you can really talk about because that, that was a great case that, you know, I, it took a while before I finally put it in my book and the FBI said I could talk about it, but you get that high of, okay, I did my job today. So cool. So five years, that was your first bust. And then five years go by and you get tasked with what ends up becoming a, an infamous case. Can you yes. tell us about that? So the, the Robert Hansen investigation was a horrible problem for the FBI. First of all, the, the FBI had spent years going after the wrong guy. So it was very embarrassing. Uh, the the agents in charge of the case were had become convinced that this guy named Brian Kelly, who was a CIA case officer, um, was the spy they were after. And Brian Kelly was was sort of the victim of circumstance. He lived near where Hansen lived. 
he jogged on uh, this jogging route that uh, incorporated just just by bad bad chance, right happenstance, uh, a signal site and a drop site that Hansen had been using. Um, and he knew he had worked this uh, this past case where we're trying to catch a spy called Felix Block that had gone completely wrong. And Felix uh, Block uh, was a U.S. spy who had spied for Russia, who we were going to arrest in Paris, France. And at the last minute, he got a call from his intelligent Russian intelligence officer in his hotel room saying, run. And he just he never showed up and we never made the arrest. But the only way that he could have known that he could have gotten that call is if there was a mole, a high place mole in the intelligence community. And we'd known that the intelligence community, and I'm not just talking the FBI, I'm talking the entire intelligence community, the entire intelligence apparatus of the United States had been compromised um, since the early 80s. In between 1984 and 85, sort of the, the, the middle between those two years, we call the year of the spy. Yeah. The United States lost every single asset in Russia. So all of our spies, all of the generals and the high uh, cabinet members and um, government uh, personnel who were who were our spies working for us, trying to make the world a better place. They didn't believe in communism, uh, were rounded up and executed or imprisoned um, and, and given hard labor. So we knew that someone who knew their identities had given them up. And so we went on this 22 year. And when I say we, I mean the FBI, you know, obviously this predates my time in the FBI manhunt for a spy that was codenamed gray suit. And it's the most legendary manhunt that in history that probably not a lot of people know about going, going after the biggest spy in us history, uh, who we only knew as gray suit, didn't even know what agency this person was in, didn't know whether it was a man or a woman, right? Um, do very little other than there's a mole and we've just randomly assigned two words and that, those words are gray suit. And you only so know each that. time you, you went after someone, this is how it works in intelligence. Each time you go after somebody who might be the target you're after, you give them a derivative code name. So Brian Kelly was gray deceiver. Robert Hansen was gray day. And uh, after going after Kelly for quite some time and feeling frustrated that we weren't learning anything, that, that it didn't look like this was a spy, the FBI and the CIA put together a joint task force, force to go recruit somebody over in Russia who could give us some definitive information, thinking it might point to Kelly. And so they, they learned about it. Someone, uh, this business guy in Russia, one of, you know, he had made a ton of money after being a, a top KGB officer, was looking to sell some secrets. And so we bought them for millions of dollars and guaranteed school of his choice for his kids. And uh, so that kind of protection. stuff really happens. Literally that stuff really happens. It's still. No, and, I know. And that's this what I'm was saying. in yeah. the year 2000, right? Still happens. So this guy had been a KGB intelligence officer who when uh, the uh, when the U Soviet Union collapsed and was reformed into the Russian Federation, they disbanded the KGB and reformed it into two bureaus, the SVR, which is like the spies, and the FSB, which are the state police. And these KGB guys were out of, out of work. And so they did what they were trained to do. They stole secrets. And, and back then, and you know, in the 80s, when everything fell apart, they 
they would sell the secrets. This guy didn't. And he kept just a, a slim file of information. He sold that for somewhere around $14 million and, and witness protection. It disappeared into the US. And it was like the worst game of Clue, right? You know, you open the envelope and it's so it's Colonel Mustard in the library with the wrench. Yeah. It, it was it was a bunch of letters, a cassette tape, and a trash bag. And with those three things, you need to build your case against the most legendary spy in U.S. history. Say what? Trash bag or what? Cassette tape and letters. So these were letters that Hansen had written throughout his career to the Russians in his dead drops, you know, when he would take secrets out of FBI and wrap them in uh, trash bags and uh, put them under a bridge in Foxstone Park in Vienna, Virginia. And then the Russian intelligence officer, after maybe eight hours of what we call an SDR, a surveillance detection run, make sure he didn't have, you know, FBI ghosts like me following him just randomly out of uh, the Russian embassy, would then go pick up the drop. And um, he would wrap, wrap it in trash bags and put a letter in each one to the Russians. And so they had them and then sent them back, but they were signed Ramon Garcia. They didn't really help, right? That was his code name that he used for himself. And where did he come up with that? Uh, you know, we think that he thought it was kind of a sexy name Ramon Garcia, right? This is the way he thought he was. It, Hansen was this big, goofy James Bond fan. Yeah. And so he needed his, you know, cool Bond name. Also, they think that the analysts think that Garcia has the letter CIA in them. Yeah. And so perhaps he was trying to send a signal to the Russians that he was in the CIA, which would throw off any of our spies who were who were then sending intelligence that we're getting information from a Ramon Garcia um, who we think might be in the CIA. I tell you CIA, what, that's right? pretty deep. If that, if, yeah, if that was deep. the case, it's, that it's, was it's deep. A lot of if chess. it wasn't and y'all came up with that, that's real deep. That's how my husband... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like, that is totally your brain. Yeah, like, well, I know. That's how I think. It makes it sound smart, Shut, right? Well, so, so, there you go. Man, like you know what? Somebody who knows how to work puzzles can see that. Yeah. Yes. And then look, we can run fingerprints the Russians couldn't. And when they ran the prints on the trash bag, that was one of Hansen's greatest mistakes. Uh, one of his prints was on it, a partial fingerprint. So a partial match. You know, a lawyer is going to talk talk a court out of that, but it, it was another clue. And then finally- Yeah, because it wasn't, that the wasn't the point, team. right? To bag, bag him, that's probably cliche, <laughs> right? To, that was just an opening. Yes. Uh, this, is, this is how we're getting, we're, we're learning that this might be the guy. Yeah. But finally, we played the cassette tape. And it was the one time that Hansen, his other big mistake, he had called- the Russian embassy or the consulate, I'm sorry, to say, where is my money? So he loaded a dead drop and they're supposed to pick up his dead drop and then leave him 50 grand in cash under a pallet somewhere, right? So there was an auditorium uh, out in the woods, not too far away from Foxstone Park where uh, the Russians would leave his dead, his dead drop of cash. And he went out and looked for it and couldn't find it. And so got pissed off and called them and said, this is Ramon Garcia. I want to talk to so-and-so. Where's my money? And, you know, they were very flustered. And of course, they're Russian. So they immediately hit record. I mean, they're they're really good at spying yeah. and uh, record everything. And said, well, did you look at the northeast corner of the pallet? And he's like, I'll have to get back to you. He'd gone to the he'd gone out at night and gone to the wrong corner of the pallet. I mean, he'd left that 50,000 just sitting there. My you know, so, you know, anybody who comes to the Washington, D.C., you know, any of your guests or anyone listening to uh, this podcast, 
when you're walking around our, our amazing parks and historic monuments and whatever, look under benches, lift white rocks, look in hollow trees. You might find cash or secrets. We're doing that. Because this no. is We're still the spot it. capital of the world. All right. All right. So hold on. Let's pause this for like... a second. Right. Let's start right this down. Okay. So we're just going to write up some random maps, right? That have the best benches and, and knot holes. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. We're... Start we geocache. still do this. Yeah, yeah. We like to geocache. Well, here's the deal. It's like you can maybe you can a spy operation by planting yeah. uh, some money in a different tree. <laughs> Throw them off. Yeah, we're going with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bag of Monopoly dollars. Most people don't think about that because DC is so beautiful. You're, you're looking when you look at what it is, as opposed to looking inside of it. I mean, the whole place is a maze and a puzzle. It's, it's, that's absolutely true. Everybody who's anybody is here, and every country is represented, and they're all spying on us, and they're all spying on each other. Right. Isn't that great? So cool. So we it's had not, enough to it know awesome. it was probably Hanson. And the problem was that this is December of 2000, and he's about to retire from the FBI with his 25-year gold watch in April. So how do you run an investigation and catch a spy in a few short months? And uh, so what the FBI did is they gave him his dream job. He, I mean, one of what made Hanson such a successful spy is that he wasn't just the most damaging spy in US history, he was our first cyber spy. He was a hacker. He was a guy who, for his entire career, for fun, would learn and teach himself how to break into computer systems. And that's what he was doing in the FBI and on task forces to other agencies. He was stealing information through computer systems that were never really built to defend. And his primary job was what in the FBI? He was a, so he was the top, Soviet analyst. So he was a supervisory special agent and his job was to analyze the Soviets and then the Russians. Brilliant. And determine who the spies were. So he's looking for himself. He's looking for he himself. He was at one point tasked to catch himself. But he's American, right? Make this he's up. American. He's American. Yep. American born. That can make that up. How did he get his connection to Russia? Like in order to to work yeah i mean like who recruited that sucker did he go looking well he was uh, so we don't know no one knows why he spied right not definitively mm -hmm. because he's refused to ever answer that question oh. but i got a pretty good idea because i spent eight hours a day with him day after day after day sitting in a uh secure office with no windows forced to talk to each other which is what they wanted me to do so i could learn about him and then figure out how to catch him. So I got a pretty good idea why he spied. He, um, he volunteered his services. So he was never recruited. He was what's called a walk-in, although he didn't walk in, he mailed a letter to the Russian consulate saying that I, I want to spy for you. Here are my bona fides. And he gave up two of our top spies in Russia, one who was uh, flown back to Moscow and executed and the other who was sentenced to hard labor. Um, just as his first, didn't even get any money for it, just to prove to them that he had access. I, I think he spied because he was angry. Uh, the FBI had not given him the role he wanted. He, he had joined the FBI to be James Bond, and he was made an analyst. Now, analysts are the bread and butter of counterintelligence. Without analysts, people who do field ops like me, we waste our time. We're chasing after the wrong targets. We're, not, we're chasing no targets. We don't know who to go after. And the analysts really are the cream of the crop in figuring out how to catch spies. 
but he wanted to be in the field. He wanted to be doing field ops. He wanted to be chasing people down, you know, shooting people with his gun, that kind of stuff. Um, well, good Lord, and, the, guy, the two guys that he burned, did, did he know them? They take his spot? I mean, that sounds kind of personal. No, he didn't know them, but he knew that they could have potentially, uh, because they were working directly with the FBI, given him up. And so he removed them from the equation. My gosh, that is super ruthless. Yep. And uh, so he was disgruntled because he didn't get the job he wanted. He also was having a lot of kids. He was living in New York City at that point, just right outside of New York City, but at the uh, New York field office. Uh, the cost of living is incredibly high there. And instead of, you know, borrowing or asking for help or, or uh, you know, downsizing a little, he uh, decided to spy to make the money that he needed to support himself and his family uh, and his kids. And um, that's how he supplemented his income. Well, that's what kept it going. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. You can understand how things get. We've had some guests on. They get into something where it's like, "Hey, man, one thing got you in it, but then the, there are good things that perpetuate it. Mm -hmm. Family and exactly, you know. But there was a point where he he rose up the ranks and made enough money that he didn't have to continue doing. This. Yeah, yeah. And he could have made better life decisions and not had to do this. And I think at that point he truly felt that I don't want to give it up because. He was the best spy. I mean, the, the most damaging, notorious best spy in, in U.S. history. I mean, you can you could talk about Andrew, uh, you know, Aldrich Games or maybe the, the Walker or any of them, but nobody did the damage that he did. And he knew it. I mean, he knew it. And he had gotten away with it for, at that point, 22 years. Yeah. And that's pretty amazing. Uh, he knew that at some point, if he did get caught, he would go down in history as the person that he became, but I don't think he ever thought he was going to get caught. And I think that he felt this is what makes me the best. You know, he's like the Michael Jordan of the spy world. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, that's hard to give up. Yeah. It's a no matter what trip. it is that you do so great. Becomes power. Yeah. What was it like having to, to earn his trust and become his, you know, not his buddy, but essentially you had to build. Yeah, how was that meet up? Yeah. It was next to impossible. It was incredibly difficult. I was set up to fail because he's been banished. At the, at the point that they asked that we built the investigation, he had been banished to the State Department because he really had problems relating to other people. Um, a, a, a woman who worked for him had challenged him and she didn't back down and he, he, he grabbed her and threw her to the floor. My right. Gosh. And you can't get fired from government. You just can't. It's amazing what you can do and not get fired from government. And he was just sort of sent to the State Department as a liaison to ride out his career. He never got performance reviews. Nobody checked up on him. They continued to give him his uh, very high clearance FBI access to our database. Like nobody was thinking, what if this guy's a spy? Right. Just never occurred to the FBI for some reason that one of our own might be the one who sold out. We always thought it was in the CIA, right? And uh, and then at the twilight of his career, right as he's about to retire, 
the FBI higher, higher ups come to him and say, we're going to promote you to executive service. We're going to put you in charge of a brand new section at the FBI that we're calling the information assurance section. And the information assurance section is going to be in charge of identifying all of the problems in computer systems in the FBI and fixing them and making us uh, safe from both inside and outside attacks. So, I mean, that's 2000 today. You know what we call that? Cybersecurity. Yeah. The FBI put him in charge of building cybersecurity for the FBI, which is a little bit not to think about it, but also real brave because they gave him his dream job, something he wouldn't say no to, knowing that not only were they giving him uh, an incredible position at the FBI, one he'd always wanted, they're also giving him access to everything. Yeah. And he must have been thinking, I can keep this going for years. And so he was going to be allowed to defer his retirement. Um, it, while also maintaining his pension, um, be put in charge of a really important position under one of the top um, assistant directors in the FBI. And they were going to give him a staff member. They were going to try that again. And uh, he was going to get to build cybersecurity for the FBI. And that then the FBI had another problem. They're looking around and figuring, who are we going to stick in the office with them? Um, because this person not only has to know how to hunt a spy, but to turn on a computer. And that was a little difficult in the FBI. We were way behind the curve in computerization. Um, but I, I was always sort of a, much like Hanson, ironically, uh, a bit of a hacker in the 80s, just fascinated by computer systems, you know, breaking security, not because I wanted to steal anything, just I wanted to understand how to make it stronger. And so I had written programs for the FBI, I had written databases, I had uh wrote a um, target tracking algorithm myself that would use target locations over time to try to predict where the Russians would be in the future. And we were catching guys using it. Um, so what? that got that, me a little bit. Hold on, I caught that FBI. part. That pretty quick, man. <laughs> yeah. Among your list yeah. of accolades, that's pretty brilliant strategy-wise. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, but, it, but it, you, of course it is, but we should have been doing that forever instead of having analysts oh, like man, move you... paper around on a table, right? Man, well, as we try and... <laughs> Yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I mean, it right. drove me nuts because but, yeah, you'd be I, a little hard on ourselves too, man. Because you know, you're only as strong as that last one. You got to move them one, one's up front, one behind. I, I get what you're saying, man. I, yeah, <laughs> and so, but at the same time, I was uh, I was in law school while this case was going on, going over to GW and doing all my legal research on Westlaw and Lexis, which is which are these incredible databases. I'm thinking I can look up any case in history. And whether anything in that case has been changed in seconds, but the FBI can't figure out where a Russian is going to be two weeks from now based on where he's been his entire career. Yeah. And I was thinking, I, I also had to be able to get to night school. So I said, I'm going to work on this program during days when I'm supposed to do night shifts. And you let me out of the night shifts, and and that was sort of the uh, quid pro quo there, bro. I tell you what, this is what you need. that that piece right there is what you should deliver to dad because you didn't go to the academy. So yeah, you, you know, <laughs> well, he knows it all. Yeah, I got, I got, they're, they're, I, got, they're I, got very, I know you're my, pretty pissed uh, about father, the academy thing. My mother thing. passed away in 2011, <laughs> um, but they she was very proud. My father, I think my mother still holds this the record for the number the most times to ever watch the movie Breach.
course she did. It was just the, like on repeat in our the, living room. Dude, moms are timeless, mom. man. They love they love unconditionally. So when yep. the FBI was putting him in this new role, did they know that this was possibly the spy? Were they creating this position to catch yes. him? So we felt that there was enough actionable intelligence to believe that this was the spy we were after, but you still have to prove it. And uh, I was able to do that pretty early on in the case. Um, this was this was after I had started doubting myself um, and, and my ability to do this and whether this guy even was the spy we were after um, sometime into the case. Uh, and and I, I remember, I, I guess, you know, talking about the reason for this broadcast, that never quit moment is there was a moment in this case where I did want to quit. And in fact, I went to the special agent who was my handler, who was in charge of tasking me and, uh, and making sure that I stayed, you know, on the, on the bright and narrow in the case. Uh, and I went to her, her name's Kate Alleman. And I said, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm successful here. It's also really destroying my personal life, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm telling so many lies to my wife right now and friends and family. I, I'm having trouble keeping them straight at the same time. I'm trying to you know, do well in law school. I, I I got one C the entire time I was in law school. Everything else was an A. And I still blame uh, Robert Hansen for that C. <laughs> it was in corporations and I ended up becoming a transactional lawyer, which is corporate law. So, uh, hey, son of a bitch, you got me kicked down to another pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm really so not I feeling was, sorry I, for I, you about one C, though. Still, I mean, damn. That's you're was, looking for. Uh, I can give you some, like, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was mad. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I can and, see and that. I was struggling and I wasn't sleeping. And uh, and she told me, "Look, you, I hate to tell you this, but you just really don't have a choice because there's no way we can pull you out right now. We pull you out, this entire investigation is done. He's starting to trust you, and you just got to stick with it. And and that's where she told me things that I didn't know, right about what Hansen had done, what they were learning, what they believed that spy had done, the people that he had caused to be killed that, you know, were, were on the blood on his hands. And that made me angry. And at the same time, I, you know, I also talked to my dad, I couldn't tell him what I was doing, but, you know, I, I, I could tell him that, you know, I'm having trouble with this job. And he was like, well, you've got to stick through those things that you, that you agree to do. You, you got to stick with it. You can't, you can't in the middle of something leave. Right. And, and he was right. And so I kind of, I, I renewed my, my will to, to win this job, not just, not just to conduct the investigation, but to win. And where things really changed for me was when I had a conversation with Hanson about Felix Block. Now, remember, I got back to this. Everything, everything I say is supposed to make sense later, right? Mm -hmm. Like when I'm writing, that's the way we do this. So remember, Felix Bloch was the spy that got away in Paris that made the FBI think the CIA guy, Brian Kelly, was the was Graysuit, the legendary spy. And, and, and the FBI was totally wrong. It turns out that Robert Hansen had mined information about the case and then uh, given it up to the Russians who then warned Felix Bloch. So it was Hansen who had done that. And there was no way he could have known about that case. And he was bragging about it, uh, that he had known all of it. And the FBI was so stupid. And Felix Block got away because the FBI didn't act when they should have acted. Um, and when I brought it to the analysts, they said, it's him. 
There's no way he could have known this unless he was the person who gave it up. And that just renewed my sense of justice that this is important. This is the spy and I'm going to catch him. And I moved from let's find information to to determine whether this is the guy we're after to, all right, it's, you, you know, crank it up to 11 full forward and, uh, we're gonna we're gonna catch this guy in, no matter what it takes. Were you ever worried about him finding out who you were? He knew who I was, so that was the other scary thing about this case. I was not given a legend. We were doing this in FBI headquarters, and so he knew exactly who I was and who I'd done. So when I say that it was stacked against me, uh, what I mean is he's given his dream job. He's being put in charge of cybersecurity for the FBI. He's being asked not to retire and his retirement deferred. He's given someone to work with and he's gotta be thinking, are they on to me? Right. Because they treated me like crap for the last two years and now suddenly they're giving me everything. Right. And he only had one point of attack and that was me. So his job was to clean himself by getting me to screw up. My job was to make him feel like, no, this was a real position. The FBI really needed you to build cybersecurity for them by not screwing up. And for a good part of this investigation, uh, that was the best I could do, just not screw up. And I realized at some point that I'm never getting out of this if I don't rise above myself and start actively forcing him to screw up. And so I had to turn the tables on the master spy. And I did that by learning from him seeing what he was doing to me and then turning it around. What was the moment, like the breaking moment for the people that haven't seen the movie or um, read your book yet? Like, what was that moment that you're like, okay, this is him, go in, move forward? Yeah, it was was a moment I was sitting with Kate Alleman and this was the special agent who was in charge of making sure I didn't screw up, right? And I had stolen during a search uh, from him a data card. And when uh, we downloaded the data card, this is earlier on, right? The, the, the Next came the Palm Pilot. That's what we caught. Yeah. We caught him. But this data card had some letters on it, letters written by Ramon Garcia. <gasps> and uh, she let me read them. And I remember reading those things and just getting angry, thinking that this is the guy that I have spent my career trying to catch. And finally, here we are locked in a room together and he's not getting away. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. That's such a rush too. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying, it's, uh, this is this is the problem I have a lot, like retelling something. I was like, hey, the moment is different. Man, like when you're standing in that sucker and you could, the intensity, how you walk in there, are you, are you playing that in your head? Oh yeah, you feel like your entire body just got hooked up to uh, a power line. Oh yeah, you're vibrating with it. You yeah, yeah. you feel it in, you feel it in your past, present, and future. Did he ever show signs that he was onto you? He would try to trap me. He would uh, he would do things to throw me off. He would say things, to throw me off. Like one of our first conversations, he told me about what he called Hanson's law, and he said, "Hanson's law is that the spy is in the worst possible place." And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Like you're the spy, right? You know, like what are you what are you trying to do here? And and uh, what he was trying to do was mess with my head, mm-hmm. and that was his mo. And he said, and it's a it's a very eloquent law, really. If you're in counterintelligence, he said, 
the spy is in the worst possible place. He's that person who has access to the information that is going to do the most damage and the knowledge and the wherewithal to get that information to those who are going to pay him the most for it. And that, Eric, is what we are here in the FBI to catch. And I was thinking in my mind, that's you, man. You're just giving me the roadmap, and that's who I need to catch because you are that person. Um, but there were things like that. I remember, you know, out of the blue, he said, we're going to church. Let's go. I'm like, what? It was in the middle of a week. It was like Wednesday it, over lunch. He's like, I go to a church at lunch. Let's go. We're going. And he knew I was Catholic because he knew everything about me. I was Eric O'Neill, right? Um, they couldn't give me a legend because, I, you know, they, they give me a name, John Smith, and I'm walking down the hall with them. And someone says, hey, Eric, what's up? You know, that I knew from a different case. We're yeah. working in FBI headquarters. So I had to be myself. So he knew not only my name, but my wife's name. He had my social security number because he was my supervisor, you know, my address, you know, my, my parents' names, all of it. Yeah. So there wasn't even a paper trail on you doing your job. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's doing my performance review, for God's sake. So y'all go well, to we mass went to church together, together <laughs> And I got to tell you, because I am Catholic, uh, which was part of the reason I was selected. Uh, he really was watching me, right? Make the you know, and I'm thinking, look, I got this, right? I know how to go to church. Yeah. Like, I'm not making this up. I don't have to make believe. Like, but I was sweating a little when we were saying our father. I was thinking, like, <laughs> man, I better, better not, you know, just be nervous and make a mistake here. Right. But that after why are you that, sweating, man? Well, I'm always like this when we're talking like, to Jesus. You- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. After that, though, don't you sweat? <laughs> Marcus and I are Catholic too. So I'm thinking you're in there and you're walking up to receive the host. Are you like sweating thinking I'm lying in church? Or are you just <laughs> oh, no. thinking you know it's what your I was job? thinking? I was thinking this guy shouldn't be in here. God wants me to do this. Oh, oh that's yeah. good. Yeah. A hundred percent. And uh and that's then, that warrior you know, mentality right there. A lot about the fact that he was an Opus Day. He started to recruit me into Opus Day. What is that? Um, he, he started was? having some very significant conversations about Catholicism and marriage. He was pretty pissed off that my wife and I had been married for three months and she wasn't pregnant yet. <laughs> um, but once you get into conversations like that, I, I, I knew I gained his trust. Yeah. yeah. Right. Wow. That's so crazy. Did you get to be a part of the actual arrest of him? The final kind of final straw, if you will? I didn't. I, I was the, the guy who found the information that led to that arrest, but I was not there on the arrest day because he did not know, uh, you know, as he was arrested and then later uh, that I was the person who found the information. Wow. And they, they weren't going to tell me for a while. Uh, they weren't going to tell him because at the end of the day, I would have had to testify to most of the evidence we found because I found it. Um, and then he would have known on the stand. Oh my gosh. That is so crazy. So did um That's a great story, man. It really is a great story. After this, I want everybody to watch the movie and check out the book. Check out the book. Yeah. Um but yeah. the uh did his wife know like when all of it came out, did his wife and kids know what he was doing? So there's there's some there are some difference of opinion on whether his wife knew or not. Right. At one point she did find, um, some money that he had hidden and, and, and actually told him that he needed to turn himself in or asked him about it. And he went to his priest and the priest said, look, you need to donate that to charity and never do it again. He downplayed it. 
you know, I did something wrong, but it's not really terrible. No one got hurt. Um, his brother-in-law, who was also in the FBI, had found out about this from his wife and had tried to turn him in at one point, but he was ignored. I mean, just the stars were aligned for Hanson. I'm not sure Bonnie really knew, or if she did knew, she didn't understand, let's put it that way, the complexity of what was going on. I mean, when Hanson was arrested, one of the things he said was, what is Bonnie going to do? She doesn't even know how to balance a checkbook. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think they had their roles in the family. And yeah. um, and he, uh, he he was the one in charge of the money. He was the moneymaker and, and the, their finances. And that was that. She was in charge of their like seven kids. I don't think any of his children knew at all. They think they were very shocked by it. And, um, but at the end of the day, the FBI investigated her and decided that she wasn't culpable. So she was never arrested. Um, the family was allowed to keep his pension in return for his plea agreement. And uh, the family was not punished. He was. Yeah. I mean, you, you, that's how it should you, be. You know, honestly. There's a way to they say they're know. punished because their father went to jail, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was a pretty bad guy. Right. That's insane. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, all it took, all it took to take Hanson down at the end of the day was a Palm pilot, believe it or not. Dang. Ramon Garcia. That is so crazy. So after that, you decided to retire. You're like, okay, I did my job. Well, I went back to the street, you know, after working undercover in this direct face-to-face investigation, which we call an elicitation. Uh, investigation where, I mean, at the end of the day, the way we caught him is I was able to steal his Palm Pilot from his bag. We, we tricked him into getting him out of the office. Um, I had an assistant director come in and uh, asked him to go down and shoot in the basement shooting range of FBI headquarters. It's down in the sub-basement. And while he was down there, I lifted his Palm Pilot, which is, I, I've got one right here. This is one that was used in the movie. Um, it's it's what's called a PDA, right? Yeah. Personal data assistant. Like anyone under 40 will have no clue what that is, but <laughs> uh, it had a screen, but you used a plastic stylus to tap things in. Well, he, he kept a lot of information on his Palm Pilot and including um, some of his letters and uh, dates he would do dead drops and those kind of things. So I stole it, uh, got it down to a tech team that was three floors down. And they started copying it. I got the Palm Pilot, a data card, and a floppy disk out of his bag. And his bag had four pockets. They were all the same. And as they're copying it, I get a page, you know, Sky t- Skytel two-way pager, right? Another thing that no one has anymore. And uh, it's the guy, the asset I put down in the shooting range saying, he's out of pocket. He's probably coming to you. So apparently, and I've seen the video footage, he, he goes down there, uh, sends his target down range unloads a clip, brings the target back, looks at it, holsters his firearm, turns around and leaves. Doesn't say goodbye to the assistant director or section chief he was shooting with, nothing. He just realizes, I don't have my Palm Pilot. Mm -hmm. And this was a device that he kept in his left back pocket and was never parted with, right? Until he sat down, because you couldn't sit on the thing because it's huge. It's not like our little smartphones now. And he's on his way up. And I tell the tech team, you got to get this done because if he gets back there before me, I'm dead. Like he's, he might shoot me. He's yeah. a pretty angry dude at this point. And if, if this has what we think it might have on it, then I'm in trouble. And I get it. And it's not like James Bond or Jack Bauer. I get there and I've got like a good two minutes. I go in the, um, 
the main door to the skiff and shut the door, which saved me. And this is this is a, uh, a special compartmentalized intelligence facility. So it's got a combination lock. You've got a badge in. You have to enter a key code. And for reasons that just completely confound me, a, a, a regular mechanical key. Like if someone can crack a safe and and guess a code and has the security badge, like yeah. they can't pick a lock. Anyway, I shut all that stuff. Go over to his desk, kneel down in front of his bag, feeling like I've just won. And I realize I have three devices and there's four pockets and I have no clue at all, which I pulled these things out of. I I was just so stressed at that moment that I, my memory recall wasn't working. And I would, and I thought to myself in that moment too, I should just put a post-it note because if he gets here before me, I'm done anyway. Right. And uh, as I'm trying to figure out which pocket I hear him coming through that door. So I just dropped all three, did my best guess zipped up his pockets, ran back to my desk and sat there and put the best poker face I've ever had. Oh my gosh. He comes <sighs> through the office, so cool. glares at me, goes into his office, slams his door and I hear zip. <sighs> and I was thinking at that moment, I was thinking, I am so dead. Like either he's going to come out here and shoot me or he's not. And I'm never going to live this down in the FBI. Like or I'm going to like kill your wife or something. Now into the future, <laughs> I'm going to hear about this screw up. Oh my gosh. And I had to make a choice. I did to decide whether I was going to get up and leave and head down the hall to an office that had been set up, which was a safe office. There was, there was an armed section chief there who was a friend who was read into the case. And that's where I could go if things got real bad. Um, or I was going to stay there and make up an excuse because I knew there's no way I possibly got all three devices in the right place. Right. And I, I did the quick mental math and I, and I thought about the calculus of this situation. And the fact of the matter was, if I wasn't sitting there when he came out already hyper uh, stressed about the situation, about, um, you know, missing his Palm Pilot, going down shooting, not feeling comfortable, he might have cut and run. And we knew that there was a drop coming. And that was when we were going to catch him. If I was sitting there, at least I had a chance to make something up. And so I sat there. Uh, I think the other, the other side of it was I felt like, this was my problem to fix, not somebody else's. And by running away from it, I was just leaving it for someone else to clean up. And that wasn't right either. I had to take, take the good or the bad, whatever was coming to me. So I sat there. He comes out of the, um, the office and looks at me. And he says, he leans over my desk and he just looks at me and says, were you in my office? And I said, yeah, I put a memo in your inbox. Didn't you see it? And I had, right? And he just glares at me. And he holds it for a long time. And then he says, I never want you in my office again. And he leaves for the day. Less than a week later, he was in Foxstone Park. He's just made his final drop to the Russians. He starts walking out of the park, gets to his car, and two vans screech to a halt. Panel doors open. FBI agents jump out, point their weapons at him. He raises his hands, drops his keys. He says, the guns are not necessary. And then he says, what took you so long? And he's arrested. We not we knew not only where he would be, but when he would be, because a Palm Pilot is a digital calendar. And that's how we caught him doing his final drop. And that is how you catch a spy. Oh, my gosh. That is so crazy. Good job, man. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. What a cool story. I feel like we just watched the movie. I know. <laughs> and you talked to him afterward. And y'all, I mean, y'all sat down and went through like, hey, man, was there any times where... 
you know, I've never spoken to him since. I, As I was writing Grey Day, I tried. I actually asked permission right after the case because I felt I needed that, right, for closure. Yeah. Um, and uh, the FBI thought about it but then declined because they said that we're still trying to get him to plead guilty. And we're afraid that if he learns that you were the person who betrayed him, uh, that um, he's going to just lawyer up and not not work with us. And we really need him to plead guilty. And then I tried to find a way in to see him. He's in Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, buried so deep, I couldn't even find a way to get there. Yeah. Um, and when I was writing my book, I wanted the last chapter to be a conversation with Hanson. Yeah. So. Well, man, how can, uh, thank yeah. you again for doing this. How yeah. can people follow you and, and find you? And what do you, what do you got coming up? Yeah, so if you want to learn more about the case and more about the evolution of espionage, uh, then grab my book, Gray Day. It's available wherever books are sold or in Kindle. Or if you've sat here for an hour and you really seem to like my voice, then uh, I do the audible for it um, because I wrote it from a first-person perspective. If you want to ask me a question, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at E-O-N-E-I-L-L, just my first letter of my first name and my last name. And then uh, go to www uh ericoneal.net if you want to learn more about uh, my public speaking and and other things that i throw on there that is so cool thank you for coming on and yeah brother hey man story. great story yeah yeah i appreciate it this was a lot of fun you know and, great great uh, and great, great family to man yeah tell your family on yeah I'll put this part in there man there that's a, the that was one of my favorite things to hear about because i i know the nostalgia in those families great job bro and carrying the line and and serving your country yeah, we yeah. love generational military families or public service. Yeah, families. I think, you know, I think it's important to serve. I think, you know, we're not here just to it's just to find a job and work a career and make money and raise a family. I think that we we owe, you know, if we're blessed to have things, we should give them back too. Oh, yeah, and, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah I mean, we're the only the country over. that doesn't have some sort of mandatory service, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so. for being a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Marcus <laughs> I feel like I'm serving a lot there, too. Marcus was just And this part of it, man, that's that's the most we do. Uh, it's like yeah. the first the first 40, man, it was the academy. Like yeah. right. we just had to sit there and figure out what we what we weren't or what what the training was for. And then switch it around and come at it from this angle. It's a little more it's a lot more peaceful. Yeah. I, right. I, I got to tell you, man, it sure is a, a, a lot better. Not that the last part wasn't. Yeah. You know, when guys <laughs> like us say that, they're like, oh, well, you wouldn't want, I was like, no, I didn't say that. I wanted to do it, you know, but this part is, is more joyful. That's true. You know, my wife's funny. She, um, when I talk about my, you know, my time in the FBI working in her cover, it all is cool, right? Yeah. It's yeah. only the best stories. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, and she laughs at me and she says, you know, you used to bitch and complain about how bored you were for <laughs> in a whole eight hours. Cause sometimes you'd have an eight hour shift where you'd sit in one spot yeah. and you'd stare at like this terrible view of uh, the edge of a tail light, yeah. just hoping that thing lit up and the person drove away mm -hmm. right? so you could do something. In eight hours, the guy didn't move. He never came out of his house. Right. You know? And that and happens the all the time. All the time. That's so the say that, Yeah, it's, it's like that. We'd say you'd work 10 hours for 15 minutes of go time. And it was that 15 minutes of go time that we ended up becoming adrenaline addicted. To. That's right. Yeah. One of Marcus's really close friends uh, went to West Point. I'm not going to say his name, but he went to West Point and then went. He was an Army Ranger, right? Uh, oh, yeah. And this then is one of the 
crosses over, goes to Bud's, becomes a SEAL, and now he's in the FBI. And I'm like, how about you that? Have, That's a heck of a but career. But he's still in, yeah. so I can't. We You'd can't love say this guy. Who he is? But um, great dude. I mean, when you, it's kind of like when I, when we look at you, you look like you are what you say, what yeah. you do. He's the same way. When you seem like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah, completely. you're like I mean, okay, yeah. He's just very professional and looking and hair's always perfect, manicured, and, teeth smile, yeah, breath always smells guy. like Michael. 